This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Mr. Will Bushman. I think I always want you to be Caston Schmidt. I think Schmidt? I make, yeah. But yeah. you say Smith. Yeah, it can get very dangerous when you throw the sh in there. Yeah. I've, I've had students and little ones, preschoolers, say yeah. my name in a way that's like, you would have to edit it out of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's safer just to call you Mr. K in the yeah. past. Yeah, Mr. K always worked, always worked. All right, so we want to thank you for joining us today. We're actually moving in today in, in our study through the book of Exodus into the great war that takes place between Yahweh and all the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh himself. And it's just awesome. I, I've always loved this. The, the first time I ever heard that the plagues were meant to be evangelistic and like tearing down the Egyptian idols. I was like, what are you talking about? I've never heard that before. And then when you study it and you pull behind the scenes and you see this is actually pretty merciful of God. He's not just like, let's go get those Egyptians. He's actually going after the things that are most precious to them, but that are bringing them death, you know, that are leaving them empty of any real hope. And he begins tearing them down so that they have nothing else to look at but him. Yeah, that's a real game changer if you've never heard this perspective before. Yeah, it's not only a game changer in, in looking at this, but when you personalize it, mm. And like, cause my conversion story basically follows what God's about to do here. You know, I had all these idols, all these, you know, little G gods that I had decorated my life with. Right. You know, and I chased them down. I'd gotten them. I thought that I was, I, I thought I was achieving the good life. Right. And then you get all these things and they're never enough and they never satisfy. And all of a sudden, it's like you're enslaved to them. I've got to do more, more, more. Maybe if I just do a little bit more, I'll feel satisfied and happy. And so God, in my conversion, which is now going back 23 years almost, God comes into my life and he says, oh, all this stuff is what where you think you're going to find your identity. And he just begins smashing them. I mean, taking one after the next, it was one of the most depressing episodes. I mean, I was already depressed when I realized that none of this stuff was giving me fulfillment. And then God started smashing them. It's like, you know, oh, this, your your parents' approval, that's, that's where you find your identity? Smash. Money? Smash. Relationships? Smash. And it was like he took all these things. And from an outsider who's listening to this, if you're not a believer who's experienced the grace of God, you'd be like, Man, well, that you love that God? Like, yeah, that this is messed up. Cruel. But it was like he was taking all these little G gods out of my hands to give me the only thing that could really satisfy me. And it was his mercy that came into my life and started wrecking my idols. And that's what God is about to do here. Why? Because he loves not just the Israelites. Mm but because he wants the Egyptians and the Nubians and all of the other cultures that are around this region who are watching the great war between 
Yahweh and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. He wants them to see all your little G gods are powerless. And so when you understand that coming into the story, and maybe I've already kind of blown the ending a little too much. Spoiler. I'm good at that. It really does change the way you see things and the way you you hear this story. You had any little G gods blown up out of God's mercy? I think, I think all the time, kind of. Yeah, like, much. it doesn't really stop. It feels like, it doesn't feel as dramatic. Actually, yeah, it does. You know, it still does. It never, never feels good to have your little G gods yeah, blown I'm, up. And I've never been in a season where I'm like, oh, nope, doing well. Like, yeah. nothing's there. There's always something. <laughs> it's true. Always, always something. And so God, in his kindness, and because he loves you so much, won't share you with a lesser God that will just abuse you, enslave you, and leave you empty. He wants your heart. So jumping into chapter 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, and now remember, Moses is coming out of this where he's like, Okay, God, I'm going to go to Egypt. He goes to Egypt, and now everything is blown up. Pharaoh has made the, the slavery harder for the Hebrews. The Hebrews are really mad at Moses. And Moses has gone before God being like, I, I didn't want to do this. Like, what have you done? The people were better off before I got here. And God says, okay, remember what I'm going to do is I'm going to remind you of my promises. That's what you get to lean into. I'm not going to give you all the answers. I'm not going to give you visions of how all this turns out. You're going to have to trust me, but here's my promises. And then Moses, you know, he gives the line, I'm uncircumcised lips. He recognized that he falls short. So now in chapter seven, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And Moses had to be going, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> like I, yeah. I'm not quite feeling like a God to Pharaoh. And he says, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He said this all before. So this is repetitive again. God is coming and saying, remember your mission. I'm going to repeat it again. You know, it's that same patience that he shows for the patriarchs that are stubborn and they don't get it. Okay, Moses, let's walk through this again. Like this should be a comfort because God does the same thing with us. He is very patient. He says, you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And you remember what it means to harden Pharaoh's heart? Like the Egyptians believed, just to hit this again, the Egyptians believed in something called the Hall of Judgment that was in their sacred book, the Book of the Dead. And in that, like in order for you to get an afterlife, they weighed your heart against the feather of truth. And if your heart was heavy you were judged forever, and Amut, one of the Egyptian gods, would, would torment you and devour you. And so when, it, when God says, I'm going to harden your heart, there's, like a, there's dual meanings there. One, which is from our lens, and it's in the Hebrew, it's, it's literally like I'm going to make him, I'm going to withdraw my grace from him to where all of the, the natural goodness that's in him just by my mercy and grace is going to be taken away, and his heart is going to be left hardened with all of his self-absorption and selfishness, he's going to be nasty and hardened because I'm withdrawing my grace. But also, the Egyptians would have heard, I'm going to make his heart heavy, mm. weighty, hard. He's facing judgment, in other words. And God gives this assurance, I'm about to unleash 10 plagues, right? None of them are going to impact this man's heart. He's He is going to remain hard, never soft. 
Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? <laughs> it's hard at first to take. Because mm-hmm. as you're tracking through this, you're like, oh God, would there have been an easier way? Yeah. And at every turn of this, you're like, okay, Pharaoh, it's time. Like, just say yes. Like, just let him go. I got into a discussion about this with a good friend of mine and we were talking about like, does God, you know, like in the prophecies, it's, it's foretold that Jesus would be betrayed, right? Sold for silver. So has God stripped Judas of his ability and free will to make that choice? You know, that's the question. Has God stripped Pharaoh of the free will and choice? And this gets back to something that theologians were back and forth with forever. Um, And the idea is the human heart is so enslaved to sin that apart from God's superintending grace, whether he makes you new and makes you born again to where you can, your sin nature dies or it can be crucified or in this, it's like, it's like God is taking his common grace away and Pharaoh's free will will always choose the evil. Mm. So, so it's not God saying you must, it's that without the presence of God's grace, you always will choose evil. And that's where the scriptures come. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. You are, your, your heart is desperately wicked. The Bible talks about. So apart from God's grace, you would be the most wicked version of yourself, period, whether you believe in them or not. And so that is the only way that I can wrestle these kinds of passages to the ground. When when Satan enters into Judas and God's grace kind of pulls away from Judas, Judas is capable of anything. And so apart from God's grace, we are capable of anything. And people say that, you know, but for the grace of God, <laughs> there go I. And that's true. That's absolutely true, whether you're a believer or not. And it doesn't take long to look at history and see the, these kinds of things happen. Yeah, you can see <laughs> humanity goes from zero to a million in the scale of wickedness in a hurry, and you're like, "How in the world did that happen?" And you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's this. And so, the friend and I that got in the conversation about whether or not there's free will or determinism, you know, election, Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, I, he was asking me about it because he really struggled with Calvinism, and I told him, which is the idea that God chooses you before you choose Him. Um, there's election and things like that, and it, it, it emphasizes God's sovereignty over free will. And so I was talking with him that my favorite, one of my favorite theologians is Forrest Gump. And if you've ever watched the movie Forrest Gump... I didn't see that coming, to be honest. <laughs> that took me by surprise. So the movie Forrest Gump is all about that very thing, and it doesn't put it in theological terms, but the whole movie, if you watch it now... Is about these two things. So, like at the opening scene, what's happening? The, I don't know, to be honest. Get out of here! I think Go I've watch seen it the once. movie. It's a great movie. I so, love it. Yeah, there's a lot of people who that would be like among their favorites. So, the opening scene is like the feather that's kind of randomly floating, and it looks totally chaotic, and yet it lands right in the book. And it's like saying, okay, it appears totally chaotic, and yet there's a design and there's a fate to everything, right? And throughout the movie, you have these two primary characters that are influencing Forrest Gump. One of them is Mama, and you could probably finish this. Mama always said, life is like a box of chocolates. You remember the next line? No. Come on. Millennials. I'm pretty young. Step up. You never know what you're going to get. So everything's chaotic. But Lieutenant Dan, his whole family was in the military. All of them died in the military, and he believes in a determinist fate outcome. I'm supposed to die. 
And when Forrest saves him in the middle of the Vietnam War and spares his life, he's angry because he feels like Forrest has messed up fate. And so you get this, is it random or is it fate? And if you, at the end of the movie, Forrest is over the gravesite of Jenny and he says, you know, mama always said, you know, that life is random like, and Lieutenant Dan always said it's the other way. And then he says, maybe it's both. And I think that there is a reality that the sovereignty of God works in conjunction with the free will of man to where both are true and yet God's sovereignty is never called into question. You go with that? Yeah. I mean, you're the one who's not ordained yet, so mm. you're... Yeah, that's why I don't want to say anything too much. <laughs> so anyway, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and says, no matter what I do, his heart is not going to change. A lot of people struggle with that because it feels deterministic, but it is what it is. Scripture says what it says. And so... He says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians, hear this? This is a big, big verse. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, which is telling what? Uh, it's evangelistic. Yeah, I'm going to wreck all their idols. Why? So that they may know that I'm the Lord. And if, if you just thought, you know, I'm going to show them who's boss, like that's not what this is getting at, it, because a lot of Egyptians will come with them yeah. out of Egypt. And so you're going to know that I'm the Lord, whether it's by grace and being grafted into my family and receiving my mercy, or you're going to know that I'm the Lord through wrath. Um, and so, I mean, and essentially that same offer is open to everyone. You're going to know that he's the Lord. The prophecy is every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And you're either going to be crying that out from a position of this is my father, my source of salvation, my refuge, my comfort, or on that day you're going to be crying it out because you realize that the one that you've been rebelling against and hating on, he really is the Lord of all the earth. You are going to recognize it one way or another. So the same thing here. Everyone is going to know that he's the Lord when he stretches out his hand against Egypt and brings out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old, which is just a weird idea. Yeah. like I, You just don't imagine him that, that old. My dad is 80 years old right now. It's weird to think of an 80-year-old Moses. Yeah, like storming into Pharaoh's. Yeah. And being like, eh. Yeah, I always, I always want to make him the young guy. Yeah, it seems like this is like a 40-year-old thing. Yeah, it right? like your 40s is a good time to but do it, this. But it, like, and that's when Moses first tries it, and it fails miserably. And it's like God's like, no, I want to wait till you're old and a little bit weaker. And What do you, you know, think? He's halfway through frail. his life? Two-thirds. Okay. He dies at 120. Okay. But... I mean, you get the idea, like God kind of wants him frail. Why? To show God's power. Yeah, He always does that. He takes the, the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. Like, he always picks the underdog. And so I think that's why he takes an 80-year-old. And Aaron is 83 years old. So when they go speak to Pharaoh, they're, they're old dudes. So verse 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says, prove yourselves by working a miracle. So he knows what Pharaoh is going to say, which is kind of fascinating. Then you shall say to Aaron, 
which is amazing because now you got to imagine this. When Fa- Moses, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself, you say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So what's, what's going on here? Pharaoh is going to talk to Moses and Moses is going to tell Aaron, you handle him. Hmm. So it's almost like God is enabling Moses in front of the greatest king in the ancient world to be like, Aaron, you handle this guy. Yeah, it's not <laughs> even worth my time. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be God, and Aaron's going to be the prophet, right? And so Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So we've, we've done this sign before. You know, this wouldn't have been really, really shocking to Moses. He's seen this before when he threw down his own staff and it became a serpent. But then comes something pretty crazy. It says in verse 11, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. What do you do with that? Do you know what to do with that? No. Are you, you just, is this just demonic? Like, what do you, I, you demonic I think it has arts? To be. I, I don't know how else you would explain this. There is, there is something there because you can't, I mean, you can't naturalize this away. This is, this is crazy stuff. And it's not of God, which is the part that's confusing. If God wants to do a miracle, okay, I get it. Yeah. But now we're seeing that the enemy has, power here to do the demonically miraculous yeah i think we're so afraid of ever giving satan any power that we reduce him to nothing and we miss the whole we miss a whole part of spiritual warfare yeah where what as a movie somewhere that says the greatest trick that satan ever pulled off is convincing the world that he's not real Mm. you know because nobody fears him um i remember a that one of the a statement. I was watching a documentary on the revival that's hitting Iran, which is overwhelmed with really oppressive Islam, uh, awful, evil stuff. And so people have been fleeing out of there. And, and one of them was an evangelistic couple that came over here and they were in America. And she says, we need to leave America and go back to Iran. And the husband was like, are you feeling guilty that we left? And now, you know, other people are suffering, but we're safe. Are you feeling guilty? And her answer was just haunting. It was something along the lines of, no, I want to go back because I feel like Satan has sung a lullaby over America. Mm. There's nobody here who sees the spiritual implications of what's happening in American culture. No one sees the evil. No one recognizes it. No one fights against it. It's just a lullaby and everybody's asleep. So I'd rather go to where the evil is loud and in your face and and you recognize that this is a, a a powerful enemy that I have to buttress myself up against and face, versus America where you just it's like you just get brought along in the rushing currents that take you and nobody even realizes that it's there. She was right. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree here. So I I gotta say that these magicians of Egypt. I think I think this is demonic magic. I don't know I don't know where else to ascribe it. And I think, you know, other people have said that that pagan gods like Allah or, you know, Vishnu or what all these gods of other cultures that they are actually demons that have been named. And I don't know that that's absolutely true, but I think that there's demonic powers huh, never heard that. and spiritual wars that go on and whether it was their name, I think they use it mightily. 
to yeah. enslave people. So anyway, here's where the story gets even more interesting. So they throw down their staffs and they become serpents. So here you've got Moses and Aaron who have one staff. It's outnumbered by their staffs. And then it says Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. What is that about? I don't know. So so you got these serpents that are going around, and it says the staff swallowed up their staffs. They throw down their serpents. And so you have, I want you to hear this. The staff ha- has been cast down. It becomes a serpent and then swallows up their serpents and then is restored to the staff. Am I reaching? Do you see where I'm going here? Kind of, but I want you to keep going. <laughs> it's the ordination thing again. Yeah. So I don't, it's interesting that the good guys, the ones, you know, the, the, who Moses, who is God to Pharaoh and, and Aaron, who is the prophet, like here you have this emblem of the shepherd that's being cast down. They do the same. And then Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. And that's the language. It's the same language that the prophets will later use when it talks about the Messiah coming and swallowing up death forever. Um, you see it in 1 Corinthians 15, again, like he swallows up death. And so what is that? Jesus will come down. He will take on himself all the sins of the world. He will be like the serpent that's lifted up on the standard. But why? So that he can swallow up all of the poisonous effects, the venomous effects of the ultimate serpent into himself to restore humanity. Like he swallows it all up. And I think it's an interesting little object lesson that God is doing through Aaron's staff. I'm, I'm swallowing up your stuff. Anyway, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So now we get into the plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. Pharaoh's in a slave city. We talked about how there was a palace and a varus that he built. Yeah, Moses can just pick up and go to Pharaoh in the morning because Pharaoh's in that slave city, just like the archaeology shows, which is fascinating. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out into the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you've not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And so Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. All the fish in the, in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. 
But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. What do you think of this? What what are like the first things that come to your mind? I think it's wild, first off. For sure. I'm thinking about the poor Egyptian who didn't see what Moses or hear about any of this, but now all of a sudden he has a cup full of blood in front of him. <laughs> Could you imagine that moment? That would be pretty wild. Yeah, because I think Did we- I cut myself shaving? What is this? What's yeah, going on I feel here? like we limit the way we, and maybe this is just how I was taught this as a kid. Like, this is a dramatic telling, and this is wild. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes we like cut it out the knees and like, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. But yeah. man, put it in a list. Yeah, sitting here and being like, Whoa, could you imagine? (laughs) It would have been thoroughly wild. And so this is going to be the first of the signs given to prove that Yahweh is the Lord. Remember, Pharaoh asked that question, who who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, here's plague number one, and God's like, by this you shall know that I'm the Lord. And it's interesting, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that, that we could go off on rabbit trails. But I love, like, the first miracle that Jesus does is what? Water to wine. Yeah, it's, he goes to Cana, and what's the purpose of it? Like, he wants, he, he's hinting, and the scriptures are showing us, this is not just a man. Hmm. This is God. This is how you will know that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord, like, he, he does the same miracle, except here it's not to bring judgment. Jesus comes to make that transformation so that there can be celebration. And that wine is going to represent his blood that brings people in. And so all of the imagery is there. And, he you know, tremendous amounts of wine that's wonderful. So Jesus is going to take this plague that, that is intended as a curse on Egypt and he's going to replicate it, except it's going to be foretelling the great celebration that he brings. And the other part of this, like if so, so that's like put on your gospel hat, and that's kind of how you see Jesus replicating this. But Egypt would have been utterly stunned with this miracle because they the Nile held like tremendously sacred significance to them, the source of all life. I've I read somewhere that like 95% of all of ancient Egypt lived within one mile or something like that of the the Nile. Everybody lived along the Nile because you could, everywhere else was desert. There was no life there. But they believed that in this ancient myth where Osiris actually, you know, he died and his Isis cut him up and threw his body in chunks into the Nile and his, the Nile, if, if you understand how it works in the South, the Nile flows North. But in the south, in the flood seasons, the river swells. And as it swells and the water's rushing north, it picks up all the clay banks. And so it turns kind of reddish. And so it it propagated this myth that the Nile was actually Osiris's bloodstream that Hmm. was bringing life to the banks of the Nile and all the irrigation and everything. So if you believe that the Nile is the bloodstream of the god Osiris. And now it's not just kind of reddish clay that helps you remember, oh, Osiris. It's real blood. It's real blood. Like thick, and with time it begins to coagulate, which is just such a gross word, and stink, and all the fish are dying and everything else. 
Like when you first see the blood in the Nile, you're going to be thinking, oh my goodness, Osiris is rising up against this new god that's you know harassing Pharaoh. Osiris is going to put him in his place. Then it all dies. Like the, the all of the all of this blood begins to coagulate and rot and everything, and it's dying. Well, then what do the Egyptians think happened to Osiris? He gone. He gone. <laughs> like he's done, gone, dead, over with. And for the Egyptians, that would have been terrifying because Osiris was their god of the afterlife. Like he is the one who ultimately determines whether or not you have an afterlife and live forever, and now he's gone. So where do you go for your hope of heaven? Yeah. Who's 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 still standing? Osiris isn't. And so you get to the next plague, and God is being very deliberate. I remember when I was I can remember the first time I ever encountered the plagues. I thought the second plague was so ridiculous, and the third and fourth right along with it. Because it feels like God is trying to scare a classroom of four year old girls or something. You know, it's like frogs. Really? I, I don't know. When you read this, it's But but like if if you're God and you're saying, I'm really gonna put the fear of God into them. Are frogs coming to the top of your list? Uh, no, they wouldn't at first, but after you read this, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want that. And also, like, what, do, what do I say now? You just described people being scared by frogs as fourth-grade girls, so I don't want to be a fourth-grade girl in your Four-year-old. Four-year-old, even worse. <laughs> but, like, I mean, you could think, what would you put ahead of frogs? Tornadoes. Yeah, tornadoes. For sure. If a bunch or, of tornadoes started coming, I'd be like, whoa. Yeah, like murder hornets or whatever they're called. Yeah, what those, are those things? that was a scary time to be alive. <laughs> you know, everybody was waiting for the murder hornets. We don't hear about murder A bunch of bears. Anymore. Imagine being in the bears. desert and a bunch of bears just come by and start uh, well, destroying that's things. That's what I'm saying, like bears. But frogs, like... Yeah, frogs, you're like, ah, I could survive. i got to kick them at least. <laughs> right? Like, th- this might be uncomfortable and it'll be a little squishy to walk around. Yeah, you wouldn't enjoy it, but you wouldn't sure. be like... Mm. Yeah, but this isn't like... A, it's not... Like terror. Yeah. All right. So anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Verse number one. The, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus as the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. If you're Moses, are you going to feel weird about this? Like, hey, I'm giving you the same talk again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. Now that you say that I did, I didn't at first, but yeah, you'd feel like, all right, yeah, let me giving, get through this. You're giving the same. It's like. Sometimes in ministry, I feel like I give the same speech probably this <laughs> this many times. Okay, you need to stop doing that. You need to stop doing that. You need to stop doing that. It's like, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with dun, dun, dun. frogs. <laughs> the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house. And you got to listen to the language here. Come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed. What's up with all this? I don't know. And into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And so what in the world is going on here? Again, this gets back to the idea of the Egyptian pantheon of gods and their god who looked like a frog was named Hecht. And Hecht was the god of fertility, hmm. which you can understand. Like after any kind of rainstorm, it's like you got like thousands of frogs all of a sudden and tadpoles everywhere. 
Um, and so they multiply really, really fast. And so frogs were representative of the god Hecht. They're still to this day sacred. Like if you go to Egypt, there's still a lot of women in Egypt that will wear necklaces with frogs on them because it represents like safety and pregnancy. It's like a good luck charm. You're not buying it? I just think, no, I don't want to, I don't know. You Google it real no, quick. No, 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 I'm buying it. I just don't. I know this isn't bad. It just seems like a dumb thing it's to pick hokey. if you're making a religion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I feel rude totally. saying that, and I shouldn't feel rude because there's only one true religion, and I support that one. So it <laughs> feels weird, but that's dumb. Yeah. Like, you should have picked something else, not yeah, fuck. I, I'm with you. Like bunnies. That would be cute, yeah. at least. <laughs> All right, a so. rabbit's foot or something on you. So here's something. Like, in ancient Egypt, the frog was so sacred that at particular periods in Egyptian history, it was a death penalty offense to kill a frog like that's pretty wild you kill a frog you lose your life like that's how sacred hect was in that culture so now i want you to hear this now it makes sense why it tells you that the frogs are coming up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed it says well why would it say that well god of sex right like it's fertility so where does fertility happen well it happens on the bed that's that's where the whole process gets started and so God ordains that these frogs are like beelining it into your house to get onto your bed so that the Egyptians do not miss the point that this is about your God of fertility. But if you're an Egyptian, you're going, oh, Hect is waking up. Hect is now coming to fight for us. Osiris got defeated, but now here comes Hect. And it also says that they go down into the ovens and the kneading bowls. And this is a way of God showing that I am I'm devastating your whole world here. Remember, like with the first plague, you have blood that's in all their bowls and lakes and ponds and everything else, so you have nothing to drink. They're like digging down in the desert trying to get to the water table to find something to drink. Well, now you have frogs, which have a death penalty offense if you kill them, jumping down into your ovens, which means the first plague wipes out your ability to drink. The second plague wipes out your ability to eat. The first plague is going to take away your afterlife, your hope of having a life after this one. The second plague comes along, and it's taking away the god of fertility, which means it's taking away new life mm. in this world. And then you have the whole water. Everything in the water begins to reek because the blood is coagulating and rotting. And then in this one, it's going to be the flaw, the, the flogs, the frogs that are going to be heaped up and, and piles and made to stink. And so let's read on with that. Yeah, Is the Nile still bloody? So it's seven days. Okay, so, so seven Nile's days back. it's blood, and they finally have water again. Okay, yeah. cool. I like that's a lot. Yeah, so if that, I mean, yeah, yeah, we kill people. If, that's what I, yeah, I'm like. Seems like and I don't even know, like, in Egypt, how far do you have to dig down to, in the water table to find some kind of fresh water? I assume a lot. It, I, it would be challenging especially by hand you know it's not like they're bringing up a bobcat like yeah mm. i'm i'm guessing everybody's racing to find the local wells and and everything else so yeah the, the bobcat so verse five it says and the lord said to moses say to aaron stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers over the canals over the pools and make frogs come up on the land so aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of egypt and frogs came up and covered the land of egypt but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land. You know, the other thing that I wonder about this is when Moses does his, you know, he hits the water and then he, you know, waves it over everything. 
when everything's turning to blood, how if they're replicating it, how do you determine whether they're just jumping on the back of what Moses's power is? That's true. They should have made it not blood if they were yeah. trying to prove something. Yeah, make it like I don't know, jello or <laughs> something different. But in this case, Moses has frogs that are teaming up everywhere. And then you have the magicians who are like, yep, okay, we want frogs too. Well, there's already frogs. So are they are they just taking credit for Moses' miracle or are they doing something distinct? I don't know. But in either, either case, Pharaoh is like, oh, you know, we got, we got the same power on, on my team, so I'm not worried about it. It says, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me. And from my people. So they can they can make frogs, but they can't take them away, right? And I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. And this is like, whoa, I thought God said that Pharaoh was never going to listen to me. He's listening. All right. So Moses said to Pharaoh, oh, be pleased. Command me when I'm to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And so Moses is like, oh, yes, I would love to go plead for you. Yeah. which should be the heart of all mm-hmm. good prophets and priests. Even your enemies, when they're ready to relent, you should be like, absolutely, I'm eager to go and plead your case before God. That should be our heart. Verse 10, and he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you know there that there is no one like the Lord our God. Good for Moses. The frogs shall go away from you and your household and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields. So we got a little bit of a mess to clean. Yeah, not what you wanted. You wanted to crawl back into the Nile. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's like, hey... I'm, I'm going to take away the great plague, but I'm going to leave you to clean it up so you can think about it. Like, I, I want you to... It's a real to, parenting move. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? But I'm, I'm going to let you deal with it so that you can think about it as you're cleaning this mess up. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Ugh. So then you get to the third and the fourth plagues. And these are pretty brief, but they're also significant. So says, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. And so when he strikes the dust of the earth, the, the God of the earth is Geb. It's like he's the, you know, the actual earth kind of figure. And so that it may become gnats in all the land. So Moses does this and all of a sudden these gnats or lice, we do, the, the Hebrew is not specific to where we can say, this is a particular type of, but it's a small bug. And so gnats, cool. lice, I've always felt that it was lice because it would make more sense of, of what the fallout is going to be. And so they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. So that could be lice. So I'm let's just go with lice on man and beast. And the dust of the earth became like lice in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to reproduce that, but they couldn't. And so when you get to the third plague, it's like, hey, wait a minute. Like, we can't do this. This is beyond our ability. So there were gnats or lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, and so now all of a sudden his inner circle is beginning to turn. 
And if Pharaoh is going to stand against God, he's going to have to start doing it alone almost. Yeah, I'd start to get mad if I knew. If I had Dude. access to Pharaoh, I'd be like, if I had access to Pharaoh, I'd be like, hey, let's go, big guy. Let's yeah. get these guys out of here. Yeah, stop. Let them go. Get them out of here. Like, what? look at what's going on. Because we know there's 10 plagues, but they don't. <laughs> That's right. They're thinking, how many more? Yep. And so they say, this is the finger of God. So they recognize that, you know, this isn't, this isn't any of our God's work. This is the finger of the Hebrew God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so one of the things that this would do, believe it or not, like when you read the Old Testament or you're getting into Leviticus, there's so many of these chapters that we just want to race through because we don't do this stuff anymore. But for the priest, the Levitical priest in the ancient world, for them to to engage in worship, they had to go through ritualistic cleansing they had to make sure that they were clean and wash their hands and feet. And every, even the way that they washed their hands was, was like super specific. You have to have this many eggshells of water poured from your elbow to your wrist. And like they were super specific, very legalistic about all the cleansing stuff. Egypt was worse. So Egypt, like they go through all the same intensity of cleansing rituals, but they're like shaving their eyebrows, shaving their head, shaving everything. Huh because they did not want the oils associated with hair to draw dirt. They wanted to be absolutely clean when they went in the presence of Pharaoh or when they went to to mediate with the other gods. And so cleanliness in Egypt was even more extreme than we find it in the book of Leviticus. So now if you're covered with lice or gnats, what can you not do? Anything worshipful. That's right. All your magicians, all your priests, everything that's associated with the worship in, in Egypt is totally put on hold here. And so you've got your afterlife God smashed, your your fertility God smashed, and now all of the people that are responsible for leading worship that you can't because you're prohibited from doing it if you're unclean. And this, you ever you ever been covered with gnats? No, and I don't plan on it. So Caleb at his pitching coach in the WA's Westfield. Oh, that place is tough sometimes. Ooh, yeah, there's like a lake there. Mm-hmm. And great pitching coach, wonderful, all that stuff, but there's a lot of gnats, and so he's a sweaty mess and running around and everything else. He will get into my car at the end of practice, and well, you weren't used to go to this field. I don't know if the gnats were as bad back then, but it'll, he'll look like he's got a beard <laughs> from oh. all of the gnats that are stuck to his sweat. It's, it's pretty gnarly. But in other words, he is very unclean. <laughs> and he would not be allowed to worship in Egypt. And I think that there's some, there's some part of God that will not, not just smash your idols, but here he's saying, I will not let you worship hmm. these other gods. Like, why would he do that? If he didn't care about them, why, why would he care that they're worshiping fake things? Yeah, it's oddly kind. Yeah. You know, there's a line in Exodus that we'll get to eventually where it says, you know, that God God claims my name is jealous. And you're like, I'm, I'm not sure that I like that. Like, because everything that we hear in the human realm, jealous is bad. Yeah. You know, jealous sounds like somebody's insecure. But God says I'm jealous, and what it like what it's saying is I want you, and I don't want to share you with anyone else, which is a wild thing to hear from your God. And 
you know, I've used and classes, you know, if Laura went out and cheated on me and gave her heart to someone else and I was like, eh, whatever, whatever floats your boat, you know, if that makes you happy, go for it. You would, you would just assume like, wow, he really doesn't love his wife. Right? Like if Morgan cheated on you. I don't like this example, (laughs) (laughs) but it works. You would be angry. Why? Because you're jealous, like you've made a covenant. You've you've said we belong to one another with our whole heart, with our whole hearts for the rest of our lives. And when you go off giving your heart to someone else, it provokes jealousy and rightly fueled anger when someone you love is giving their heart to destructive things. So the fact that God is jealous is amazing and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's actually worthy of worshiping him for. Like mm. he loves you. He doesn't want to share you. Like he's God's possessive of your heart. That's pretty cool. Weird. Hard, hard to fathom why he's jealous of, of me yeah. or for me, but he is. All right. So, so then we get to verse 20 and we're on the last of the plagues that we're going to hit today. And it is the plague of flies and in the Hebrew, this is it kind of it's just big like bigger bugs, and so the first one is like these small little bugs, pesty bugs, you know. So it could be lice, it could be chiggers, it could be oh that would stink. Yeah, that would really stink. I hate those things, or fleas, or it's something like that. Where in this case, it's it's a bigger size bug. So think you know hornets, flies. I have a particular thought that when you see that this is totally about you know, Egypt's idols and the pantheon of gods, I think it's pretty obvious that this is going to be scarab beetles. Of course. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> because scarab beetles and Egyptian culture were extremely sacred. And so let's let's read on. Then the Lord so have you ever seen the mummy? Yeah. Is this well don't you don't give me yeah like of course you didn't see Forrest Gump at one time. The mummy's way more recent than Forrest Gump. Is it? I think Are so. Are you sure? I'm Googling it. All right, 1999 for The Mummy. Yeah, I was alive for that one. Worst comes 94. All I, right, was so, just, I was just being born. Okay, but it's five years apart. It's not like you're talking about like three generations I thought Forrest Gump was in the 80s for sure, to be honest. <laughs> no, nine, five years, dude. Give me a break. So anyway, now I forget. Oh, and the scarab beetles. Yeah, they crawl into people. They're all over the place in these tombs and pyramids and everything else. They're all over the jewelry of ancient Egypt. The scarab beetle was a big deal, a big, big deal. Uh, Pharaohs would be buried with scarab beetle jewelry in their chest. They would put their names on jewelry that was in the shape of a scarab. Um, And archaeology, that's a big deal because you find these scarabs all over the place that help us to date when this particular layer in archaeology comes from. We, so scarabs are everywhere. They're super, super sacred. All right, so verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. So again, wake up, go on a short walk, and there's Pharaoh. You're in the same city. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. You know, we've, we've been through this before, Pharaoh. You know how this is going to go. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and under your houses. And I think this, you know, swarms of these, these dung beetles. So 
this is definitely worse than the nat- unless they were chiggers. Like chiggers would would have been bad. Yeah. But this is upping the ante a little bit here. Like these are bigger bugs. It's definitely going to be more of a hassle to deal with. And so it says the houses of the Egyptians will be filled with swarms of flies and on the ground where they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. So in the first plague, everyone's water turned. And the second plague... Frogs were all over the Hebrew territories and the Egyptian territories. Third plagues, everybody was dealing with the lice or the gnats. But now it's going to be like this perfect little region that's totally isolated and protected from this plague. Everyone else is going to suffer. So now the Egyptians are not, they're going to be like, okay, not just is, is there a battle going on where our gods seem to be losing, but now their people are spared and shown mercy where we're getting the brunt of it and our gods are being torn down. This would have sent a, a, a big message, I think. And Moses' calendar would be much clearer after this because can you imagine how many times he got pulled aside during the first three by yeah. the Hebrews? Like, <laughs> hey, they, hey, can you talk to God for us? Yeah, like, we need water. Yeah, we need you, water. They're the bad guys. Like. Yeah, for just sure. plug them. <laughs> All right, God. And and so now God starts setting his own people apart. And he says, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, so that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, this is evangelistic. I want you to know who the true God is. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land, like stay in Egypt, which is the land of death. So that's a no. God's not interested in staying here. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness to get out of the land of death. Hear that? Three days' journey out of the land of death. And to sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so... Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away and plead for me. Now that's pretty wild. So we're in plague four, and Pharaoh is starting to be like, it's like he knows the right thing to do, right? But he is so saturated with sin and stubbornness that he can't do it. So he's like, okay, I'm going to let you go. Please don't go very far. But that those words right at the end of his statement, plead for me. In other words, I want, I viewed as a God by all of my Egyptian people. I want you to go to your God to plead on my behalf. So it's like, he knows God is God. You pick up on that. Yeah. He like, remember at the beginning, who is the Lord? Now he's like, I know who the Lord is. I see it plead for me to that God. And yet, even though he knows it's God, he's still going to harden his heart, which is wild. And how many people do that? How often do we, even though we know that God has authority over us and we want people to plead on our behalf to God, but 
then we close it, close our hearts and, and say, I'm still going to rebel. So verse 29, Moses said, behold, I am going to, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not the Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Like Moses knows where this is going. And he's like, please don't make all that possible. Please. Like I'm going to plead on your behalf, but don't change your mind. Don't pull the rug out from under us again. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say this. The reason also why the scarab beetle was such a an important god is you had Kepri, who was a god who took the shape of the dung beetle. And he was seen as a god who kind of like, you know how dung beetles will go. The reason why they're called dung beetles is they go into big piles of poo. They harvest their meals. We're talking about all kinds of yummy stuff today. Blood and poo. poo. And <laughs> so they will roll up a ball of poo and then they will they will get behind it and they will roll it back to their home and they will like have it there to feast on. And so that's why they're called dung beetles. Well, in Egypt, Kepri was behind the sun, pushing the sun like a dung beetle pushes a ball of poo and the sun would go across the sky. I mean, it's pretty absurd myths, right? They are. And why would they choose the things they choose? Like, again, <laughs> a dung beetle? Like, come uh, on. Somebody got really creative. There's some peyote in Egypt. Yeah. Somewhere. But anyway, like, this is this is what they... So, so you got all these gods. Now you have Kepri, which is associated with Ra. I mean, they're, and they're all, you just see, like, the pantheon of gods is just going... Clunk, dunk. They're all falling. And so this is going to accelerate as we get next week when we jump into the livestock and hail and fire and locusts and darkness and death. Um, you're gonna and boils. You're gonna see like I went out of order, but anyway, that's what they are. You're gonna see all of the the compounding where now the plagues are going to be taking out multiple gods at a time from from here going forward. And so, if you are at a spot. In your life where you feel like, man, it feels like everything precious to me is shaking or being shattered, and the the natural instinctive question is to say, does, does God hate me? Like, is why would he do this to me? Why am I going through this? And as somebody who has been through that, you know, that kind of stuff repeatedly, but at my conversion most profoundly, I can look back on the season when God was really destroying and wrecking the things that were most precious to me then, and I honestly look back and I see nothing but kindness and all of that. And what God was doing was saying, "Take your heart that's you know your heart that's being wrecked by all this other stuff that never satisfies and only enslaves. Take your heart away from that stuff." and give it to me, and watch how much more I can satisfy you. And when I refused, and I was like Pharaoh, and I would not submit and let go of those little g-gods, God was kind enough to smash them. And so if your idols are getting smashed, that is not necessarily a sign that God does not like you. In fact, it's all far more likely 
that God is trying to get your attention because he's jealous of your affections and he loves you too much to share you with garbage. So take that, and, and that's what God is doing here with the Israelites and the Egyptians. That's his nature. And so if you find yourself in that season of life, take heart. God is after you. He's not turning away from you. He's turning towards you, but he won't share you with your idols. And just be happy he's not turning rivers to blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or drop him poo from the sky on you. That was bad. I don't like how you're calling it poo. What, what is the better way? Poop? I think poop. Food, poop. Poo made me feel weird the whole time. <laughs> I got little kids. That's true. So I hope this has been an encouragement to you and interesting and, you know, that encourages your faith. Uh, join us next time. We're going to be continuing in the plagues, going through plagues five through ten. And so thank you so much for joining us. We hope to uh, share a podcast with you next week. What I, I'm one That of was days so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. God bless. Bye. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water. Thank you.